We used to do right and wrong, and we enforced right and wrong through corporal punishment, through fear of some sort. Everyone my age had some fear of your parents. So there's your big shift. Your children aren't afraid of you, and you raise them not to be afraid of you. You asked for their opinion. You gave them choices. You identified their strength. So we shifted to a different kind of coercion, which was moralizing, explaining. But moralizing and explaining is not the language that children are speaking. That's the language of preachers and children are scientists. And I think there's some part of us that's afraid that if we just give children causes and effects and then we coach them through that while respecting them and not judging their choices, that they're actually going to be horrible people. But they're not. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now here's a question. How do we raise, mentor or lead the young people in our lives to be bold. Now, oh, I love that word, bold. In other words, how do we raise or lead lions and not lambs? It's a good question, or at least I think it is, and one that I have heard asked a lot, especially since becoming a parent, which, along with running a business and therefore leading teams of all ages through good times and bad times, has been one of the most significant and therefore utterly terrifying journeys inside influence of my entire life. But I digress. Raising lions versus lambs, that's what we were talking about. It's a great question, but here's a better one. And this is one that you don't hear asked out loud very often, but it is there in the background for parents and for leaders, like a quiet panic that you just don't want to voice. It's this. Could we actually survive raising lions? if we were to choose to do so. If we were to instill that kind of strength, that kind of passion, the ability and the need to question and test every hypothesis, every boundary, to take nothing for granted, especially the instructions of those who are supposedly in charge. Do we, as parents and leaders, in our most quiet and overwhelmed moments, do we even want that? And yet... Don't we, don't we need more of those skills right now? Especially now with so many global issues requiring the type of fierce leadership that increasingly only seems to come from younger generations, from those who haven't yet learnt to shut up and do as they're told, stay in line. But let's be honest, raising lions is not easy. Leading lions is not easy. In many cases, families don't survive. Teams fall apart, governments collapse... Those in charge end up squashing the very passion they were hoping for, swapping innovation for speed and diversity for consensus. So here's my question again. How do you lead lions without taming them? How do you raise passionate, robust, fierce human beings without surrendering your sanity? Now, to get some insights into this question, we hunted down my next guest, the incredible Joe Newman. Joe was one of the very first children globally to be diagnosed with ADHD, a label 
that taught him, in his own words, to feel broken and accept the diagnosis that he had limited potential to offer. Happily, since that day, Joe has dedicated his life to shattering that label, to rebuilding his identity and to challenging our notions of the interplay between potential, passion, obedience and leadership. For the past 30 years, he's worked with children from every walk of life, all considered to have extreme behavioural issues. And in doing that, he has repeatedly shown that by changing the ways that we interact, by, by getting deeply curious and by respectfully, respectfully holding our ground, behind those issues is more often than not extreme potential. His work and the, his perspectives on parenting, power and relationships have been shared and discussed by thought leaders across the world. He has also since written the, the incredible book, Raising Lions, The Art of Compassionate Discipline, which sounds like a book for parents, right? And, and it is. But here's the thing. There is not one single leader I know that doesn't struggle with compassionate boundaries, with channeling the friction, innovation and diversity within their teams. Same tools, just different language. So in today's episode, Joe and I are going to jump into some of the shifting waters of topics like the attributes of a lion. What is a lion and what does it take to lead one? Whether labels are ever useful for children and for adults uh, or whether they're just permission to separate us out from our actions, from the way that we interact. What does a child or an adult for that matter who can self-regulate actually look like? Now, this one's really important because we all know that you can't be what you can't see, or at least it's very difficult. So if we can learn to recognize it when we see it, somebody who is a master at self-regulation and move towards it when we do, our chances of being able to become that go through the roof. Why lions love conflict, and they do, and how to use that to actually propel constructive action. How to use consequences effectively and respectfully. This one, huge in my life right now. And finally, how to meet someone's hand in inverted commas. And you'll know more about that when you listen. And powerfully answer the inherent question in all lion interactions, which is, I have power. Do you? Now, one of my, one of my greatest curiosities when it comes to influencing and one of the deepest intentions behind this podcast behind the work and the passion and the love that goes into this podcast is how often and unintentionally we get it wrong you know no one wakes up thinking that they want to hurt or fail the ones that they love or lead however unfortunately the usual suspects of influence those that we see so often being successful in the short term in our homes our businesses our governments and our on a global global platform those words like charisma, bravado, force, or sit, just sitting on the fence and avoiding conflict altogether. They rarely ever get us where we need to go in the long term. You can't force somebody to respect you or listen to you or love you or collaborate with you. And trust me, trust me, I've tried. Nor does anything ever get any better by avoiding the transformative friction that comes from conflict or by taming and caging the diversity that we find. We need lions, but first we have to believe that we can survive them, or better than that, better than that, thrive because of them. So, grab your coffee, 
or relax into whatever traffic jam you're stuck in right now and prepare to be challenged in all the best ways by the force that is Joe Newman. Joe Newman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I want to kick off. There is a question I always ask at the beginning of the podcast, and it is whether you, you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And for those that listen to this podcast frequently, you'll have heard me explain this a thousand times. But the idea behind this question is that for a lot of people, the ability to stand up, have their voice heard, stand for something be it a methodology or an idea the assumption is you need to be an extrovert in order to be able to do that and so I'm just running a field experiment that's been going on for about 12 months now do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert well for most of my life I definitely considered myself an extrovert Um, and mostly just because I had no impulse control so uh, things were blurting out all the time Uh, but as I moved forward I realized I had these giant chunks of time when I like to spend a week on my own and it was highly energizing so it's a tougher question now than it would have been even 15 or 20 years ago um i I definitely like people i'm energized by conversations and i would say so i I think i'm I'm still dominantly uh an extrovert but um there's times when i just need to get away from everybody and have no input whatsoever for a couple days I love that you you named the book Raising Lions and not and not Taming Lions because it, it it struck me that you know that it could have easily it could easily go that way and the the phrase raising lion is it's such a recognition of strength of both the the child and the parent was that was that a conscious choice that wording yeah i think absolutely uh, for me you know um you know it definitely wasn't taming it wasn't changing them into sheep or cows or giraffe or whatever i want i like lions i've always liked kids that are challenging i think there's a, a, a important function in that i find those kids the most interesting personally um and uh and it describes me you know i and i i really came to a lot of what i i i teach people in the book through learning that what I had initially been called, which was disordered and, you know, lazy or whatever, was uh, which just wasn't true in the world. I was, you know, I was ferocious and I was I was going after things. And uh, and if something wasn't teaching me, um, you were going to know about it and I was going to find out a way to learn. So um, I find those are great qualities. Those are lion qualities. I want. Yeah. I want bigger lions. You you hinted towards it there, and you've described yourself before as I'm hoping I'm using your language here as an aggressive, willful, and impulsive child. The the type of child whose arrival at the playground would cause parents to gather up their children and leave. Did you? Is that a reflection looking back, or did you internalize it that way at the time? Were you aware of the labels of the of the reaction of the responses around you? You know, it happens very slowly. You know, at the time, you just you wanna you wanna fit in. You want people to like you. Every four year old wants people to like them. They don't they don't want them to leave when they show up at the playground. Um, you know, I, so but gradually, 
you know, I really did internalize that. I think being medicated from the time I was seven, I mean, they actually, they studied me actually at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C. and uh, John Hopkins University because I was considered sort of the poster child for uh, hyper uh, impulsive kids, you know, and, um, and I love, I actually loved the study cause it was like being in a science fiction movie, which for, you know, precocious seven year old running around with guys in lab coats and wires stuck to your heads, watching psychedelic movies. It's, uh, it's all good fun. Um, that was the upside of, uh, the downside was every time I took that pill, you know, part of me just accepted that, that I was broken. I was different than everybody else. As a consequence of those behaviors, what happens is that 95% of what you hear from adults, particularly in school, is corrective. Joey, don't do that. Joey, put that down. Joey, sit back down. Joey, raise your hand. Joey, I told you before, blah, blah, blah. Bum, 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 bum. It's just nonstop barrage of what you're not doing right, and most of which you know. You, you know, and you don't need somebody else telling you. It's almost like they told you a second time because you know it inside. Let's just stick with that for a second. I was going to go there later, but while we're here. So you've got that constant correction, and I think that most parents or carers or teachers would recognize that in themselves to an extent, if not a large extent. Walk me through the alternative. I have a sense of what it might be, but just walk, walk me through what the alternative would look like. The first thing to th do is think about if you froze any of those moments, any of those moments when you're about to say, don't do that. If you do that blank, you know, hey, I'm tired of that. I told you that six times. Freeze any of those moments before you speak and ask yourself a question. If you offered your child a sufficiently motivating something, could they tell you what you were about to say? If the answer is yes, then you're robbing them of an opportunity to internally solve that problem. We're taking that space from them and it, and taking that space when they can take that space, when they know that space, that causes all kinds of problems. So the alternative is realize your children are researchers and give them data. What's data for me? A simple thing is it might be, um, you want them to concentrate on something. You say before, before you can do that thing that you, you want to do later on, you have to finish this. If they, they throw something across the room and you say, uh, Teresa, I need you to take a break for a minute. What, what did I do? I'll just sit there for a minute, not in trouble. And then you can come back when you do that. And you don't identify the behavior internally, the child's identifying it and you're letting them be the researcher they're meant to be activating that. I love that language. I think I've, I've heard you say that before, you know, that children are master researchers. They have way more information and they have conducted way more analysis on information than anybody gives them credit for. And is that one of the ways you can use that tendency, that master researcher? Because, I mean, if you think about all they do all day is research, turn something, something upside down, you know, look at it, lick it, put it here, throw it at somebody. Are there other ways you can use that tendency to be a master researcher? I say to your advantage, but to the advantage of, of, of your child, you, the dynamic between your child and you and their growth. I, there's two parts. You, you, wanna, you need to create, up, create motivators. And this is, there's two basic system, uh, pieces to what I teach parents and teachers. 
One is you have to create a, a natural set of motivators, causes and effects, okay, that the scientist can learn from. And the second part is you need to give them autonomy and respect. And that's, that sometimes is even more tricky. But that's identifying their power in that moment to make a decision one way or another and respecting that power. So, for instance, you know, you might say to your uh, four-year-old, I need you to take a break for a minute. And they go, I'm not going to take a break. You can't make me. So, well, I'm not going to make you take that one minute break. But if you don't take that, then it's going to become a longer break. And after that, then I will have to hold you and stop you. Or, you know, then we're not we're going to turn off the, the thing you're doing. And so you need to set up a, a framework that they can adjust to and learn from. But at the same time, identify their power while you're doing it. And I think identifying their autonomy is a big part of that. So. Just going back to labels for a second. The reason I'm, I'm kind of harping on about this one is I have a, a number of friends who are, who are parents who have heard a lot of labels about their children and have pushed up against them on some occasions, have accepted them in other occasions. Can labels be useful from a complete no-judgment place? Can they be useful or are they always inherently dangerous? I think they're limiting and I think we should wait until I should, I think we should have some skepticism before we accept them. Um, so, you know, and I think that's, uh, and I mean, that's very interesting. I read something the other day by someone who's was writing that they just discovered that they were Asperger's when they were 30 years old and that they found it a relief. Um, so I think for some people it's a relief to understand that they work in a very particular way, but for me, I think about it in terms of almost like the Myers-Briggs testing. Like when I learned I was the kind of person, like t personality type-wise, that was always going to prepare at the last minute, I stopped giving myself grief three days before when I hadn't started the project. And um, so I think it helps you to be nicer to yourself. But at the same time, I think with every label, you, I, I just, I'm a firm believer that, the, that there's something important that's positive about that attribute. Whether it's Asperger's or uh, ADHD, there are powerful qualities to that, which are not, which cannot be called simply a disorder, but rather a different way of approaching the world. So almost as a, if you do, you know, if you do find labels helpful, if you have found them helpful either for yourself or somebody else, to use them as a framework to set yourself up for success as opposed to a reason to consider yourself a failure. I'm paraphrasing. Is that, does that feel right? Um, yeah, and I think that's on a personal level. I think in terms of when we work with children, I, I think everyone should be very suspicious about, like I used to, you know, they would give me a very difficult case and they'd say, we've got a big file on, you know, Jennifer, do you want to, let me, I'll bring you the file. Um, and I'd say, you know, you can hold on to the file. And they said, what? I well, I don't want to, I'm not going to read it. Well, why not? It tells all the, you know, the, the diagnoses and the medications and all that. And I said, because I want to get a fair assessment. I want to go into it with a, a level of skepticism. And I think this is what's missing uh, in terms of working with difficult kids is that the first step should be, let's, what if we assume there's nothing wrong with them and they actually have adapted these responses from a very healthy instinct and we can turn that around? 
And let's test that out. Let's test out all those things before we accept those conclusions or the labels. So in that respect, I think labels can be very dangerous. Um, uh, you start off with, you give a label too early and you haven't worked that out. Uh, people create accommodations for that behavior. The child sees those accommodations. They start to feign inability in areas where they know that it'll help them to avoid frustration. Um, and then it looks like a bigger disability. There's more accommodation and the cycle continues. So what's a way, I mean, you said looking at their instincts and, and coming in with a natural assumption that their instincts have come from a healthy, a healthy place. What do you then do to work with those? Can you give me an example? The first thing I think is that I want to I want to frustrate the behaviors that I'm having a problem with. And I want to frustrate those behaviors and at the same time, give respect and autonomy. So I'll give you an example of a um, recent case. So I had a had a boy in second grade, seven year old, and he was his behaviors were completely out of control at home and at school. Uh, so I went to the home. I taught the parents how to do a basic uh, three step protocol. Instead of identifying his behaviors, you know, he'd yell at you. He'd grab your shirt. He'd hit you if you weren't giving him what he wanted. Instead of identifying any of that and say, and telling him what he was doing wrong, I asked him to just give him a break. Say, so take a break for a minute. If you didn't take the break, then uh, the break became five minutes. If you didn't take the five minute break, they physically stopped and held him until he was done his tantrum and did the five minute break. So it was a lot of work for the first 48 hours. But at the end of 48 hours, they saw a radical shift in terms of so many of the interactions that he was already adjusting to. So this simple intervention had already changed the dynamic. And they were they ended up, they were probably holding him once a day for the first two weeks. Um, but by the end of a month, they were they had to hold him once once a week, and he was stepping into all of this place where they used to give him information about his behavior. And he was solving the problem before he needed to get a break or he was proactively considering their need where they used to have to step in and tell that him what it was. At what age does that does that become effective? Is that effective from from the get go? And this is a selfish question. I have a I have a two and a half year old. And does, is that is that tactic effective from birth onwards or is there a certain age where it kicks in? Well, the youngest I've done it is. 18 months. Um, so, and I'll give you, so this, I had a, a mom that I'd done some work with uh, over about uh, two years with her older boy. And she said, I would love it if you could come to my house and see what living my life is like for one, like three hour period in the morning. And I said, you know, what do you mean? She says, uh, can you come to my house at six 30 in the morning? I'll leave. You wake up the boys get them dressed. She has three boys, two twins that are, uh, in this case, two and a half and a uh, six-year-old. She says, you wake up the boys, you get them dressed, cleaned, fed, and to preschool and see how, and just, I want to know if you can do it because it's so hard for me, despite what we've, you know, we've done together. And, um, and I knew the boys and the boys knew me. So um, I said, yeah, sure, let's try it. And uh, I wake up the one of the two and a half year olds and he comes out and he's got a wet 
you get, he's he's in a onesie, you know, and and you can tell he, he I think he's got a wet diaper and it's soaked through a little bit, and he's just like making this ah noise at me. You know, he can talk. He's got he's got a pretty basic vocabulary, but he can talk. And I and he he's just putting his hands out at me and frowning, going ah ah. And I have a pretty good idea. He wants me to help him take off his onesie, but I'm not going to let him get off that easy. So I said, eh. Eh? I don't know what that is. And he, so he grabs hold of his onesie and he's, he goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, I still can't, don't really get you there. You, you need some help with something? And he says, off, off. And I said, hmm, well, let me wait for a minute. You know, I can't help you to your little calmer. And he, he stops and he kind of gives me a little smirk and he stands in front of me and he pulls on his onesie again and he goes, off. Help me. And I said, okay. And come here. And I sit down and he walks up and I start to take him, you know, take his onesie off. And he starts to go limp, you know, this sort of flopping thing. And as he does, I just stopped my hands and moved them back to me. And he noticed when I did that and he got this little glimmer in my eye, in his eye, and he he sat, he kind of stood back up. And I said, you ready? And he says, yeah. And he stepped back up to me. So just this space. And, and this went back and forth for about three minutes where I wanted his cooperation. And I asked him to articulate to the best of his ability and to stop whining at me uh, if I if he was going to get from me what he wanted, which he wanted out of that onesie. So I kind of had a, you know, a, a um, attentive audience, if you will. Um, but I think in there are the are the aspects of the method. Um, I refuse to do for him uh, things that he can do for himself or accept from him moments when he wasn't uh, stepping up and giving me his best. Uh, and it put him in a much better mood. And, you know, so he was he was in a happy mood, you know, probably 10 minutes later and when we're sitting down to breakfast. From everything I've read, it, it seems, and please correct me, it seems that you had two pretty supportive parents and I think that that's, that's important to say because there's obviously a lot of judgment out there and mainly on ourselves. What methods did they try to turn? I mean, you've said yourself you were a test case, literally a case that was tested. What methods did they try to turn it around and, and why did they fail? Why do they, you feel they failed? Well, I think it was a combination. You know, um, my mom was pretty soft about it and she was accommodating and loving and just trying to help me. Eventually in high school, she actually used to take my dictation because um, I could test well. So I tested into uh, advanced courses, but I couldn't sit still to, to read a book or write a paper. So I, I would pace around the house um, and call out my papers once a month and she would do dictation and, and write the paper for me. Um, but it was my words. I would just you know pace around. But I think part of it was that you know, aside from that, in terms of setting the boundaries, they would set them in ways that were sort of all or nothing. Um, they kind of yelled a lot. My dad would yell a lot about the behavior. Um, my dad would sort of pair the boundary with too much information and a bit of humiliation, which made me fight the boundary more. You know, I think they tried to they sent me to a lot of specialists and, you know, psychologists and people to help me with planning, but they didn't know how to create an effective motivator day to day. 
that that helped me build up uh, sort of the muscles that I needed for attention and finishing work and uh, concentration. Um, I eventually had to do that with myself. What did that look like when you did it for yourself? Well, yeah, I think part of it just happened in the work world. I always liked work because the the problem solving was very straightforward. And I just, if you don't show up, you know, you might not have a job the next day. Um, And then I think, to be honest, some of it didn't happen until I was in my 30s. I moved to California and I knew at that point I wanted to work with kids and that I, I, I was really interested in working with difficult kids and that eventually I'd have to go back to college. So, um, but I couldn't sit still to read a book. So I got a studio apartment with no computer, no television. Um, and I just started buying books. And so initially it was just cause that was the only thing to do in the house. I could surf. And then when the sun went down, there was nothing but books. So I, I would literally read 20 books at a time to begin with because I couldn't concentrate for more than a page or two. So I'd read a page or two of a biography and then go to a, a book about mathematics, read a page about that, go to a history book, read five pages there, shift over to linguistics, read that, find a science fiction. And I would pace around the house reading in chunks. Um, and that went on for about three years until I, I'd broken it down to now I was down to about five books. But what I was doing was sort of creating um, new neural pathways um, just by reading over and over and developing my ability to concentrate on a book. So can we just go back to that that question for a second around you said that they they hadn't built up the necessary motivators and you figured out how to do that. Can you walk me through again – how, what did you figure out in terms of setting up the necessary motivators? A simple motivator is this before that. So with my own daughter, when I moved in uh, with my wife, she was 13 and she just had no um, ability to sit still or concentrate or finish homework. And she was lying to everybody and have everyone running in circles. But on her good day, she would tell you she wanted to get good grades and she was sincere. So we set up a system where, Before she could do anything else, she had to spend, at first it was an hour and a half, and later it was two hours, sitting at a a table uh, in the house with her homework. And until that time was complete, she couldn't do anything else. Now, once a week, we'd have a big argument, and she'd fight with me that she only had 10 minutes of homework because she wanted to go somewhere. But I just kept holding that boundary. And gradually, by holding that space, just that – this happens before that, and there was no other distractions. She developed the capacity to um, to focus. Ended up being, you know, a really good college student. Can you? I probably should have done this at the beginning. Can you just explain what a lion is, and what are the, what are the strengths? I mean, I'm sure for most parents or carers out there, you know, they're well aware of the challenges of of raising a lion. So, so what is a lion, and what are the strengths? Lions, in one part, are children that aren't motivated by your, your approval or disapproval. That's not their primary motivation. They might be motivated by having power, and sometimes that's by opposing you. And sometimes it's just that they want to make their own decisions about things. Now, this usually comes about as a consequence of maybe being particularly precocious or having a hard time controlling your impulses. And then 
getting lots of information that you don't want. So you start pushing back against that. But I think it's, it's a fierce, it's, it's a child who's not taking, um, he's, he's not following your directions. She's not following your directions. She doesn't, she doesn't care if you like their behavior or don't. And in some cases, a lot of that starts from just being impulsive and not being able to do that, um, to stick to the rule. And then it, it builds and becomes another thing. Um, on the other hand, there's another, there's kind of another type of lion, which is a child who will, um, the more you start to take, the more you prompt them, the more they're going to pull back. And then parents end up taking up the responsibility of the prompting and the cueing, and they're doing way too much of it. So if you're telling your child five times, you know, your, your six-year-old, you're telling them five or ten times in the morning to put their shoes on, and you're reminding them of the, of the rules and what time they have to be out, and you're just constantly giving them information because they're not following it, you've inadvertently sort of become their prefrontal cortex. You're doing the work for their prefrontal cortex. And the more you do that, the more they're going to pull out of it. So there's sort of a passive approach and there's an active approach. Um, but either one is a, is a way where a child's is exerting power in the dynamic. You've said that our culture is, is mass producing lines, which I thought was a really interesting point that we're, we've become really good at creating and developing children who are self-assured, confident, unafraid. Um, yet, now that when that traditional authoritarian approach to parenting has gone where, you know, don't speak unless you're spoken to, we, we need to develop new ways to help our children self-regulate without undermining their confidence. What does that look like? It, it really got me thinking, you know, what does a child or an adult for that matter who can self-regulate look like? The main mode that we need to shift from is right and wrong which is what we used to do. We used to do right and wrong, and we enforced right and wrong, good and bad, through corporal punishment, through fear of some sort. You know, everyone my age had some fear of your parents. Um, and I don't know if you can say that about children today. So there's your big shift. Um, and if you're wondering why, even if you wanted to go back to corporal punishment, it wouldn't work or it would work badly, is that your children aren't afraid of you. Um, and you raise them not to be afraid of you. You asked for their opinion. You gave them choices. You identified their strength. You spent a lot of time looking them in the eye and having conversations to the edge of their ability. Um, so then we shifted from this corporal idea of right and wrong to a different kind of coercion, which was moralizing, explaining. Um, but moralizing, explaining is not the language that children are speaking. It's that's the language of preachers and children are scientists. So. The shift has to be that we have to realize we're dealing with scientists. And, and I think there's some part of us that's afraid that if we just give children causes and effects and then we coach them through that while respecting them and not judging their choices, that they're actually going to be horrible people. But they're not. And children, the innate capacity for compassion, for considering other people, even for self-regulation, all these things can come up. But We've got to give them the data, the causes and effects, and the autonomy to make that happen. I think, and I'm really, I, I keep coming to the word autonomy because it, um, more and more I'm seeing uh, how powerful it is for children. Like even if, if a child's 
having a tantrum and I've, I've got to hold them because they were running around throwing things across the house. And, and while I'm holding them, they're kicking and screaming, going, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to take a break. I'll say, if you need to kick and scream, you should kick and scream. I mean, I've got to wait until you're quiet. But if you need to do that, you should do that. I'll wait. And then you can do it in more uh, in all sorts of settings where if you recognize their power and you just administer cause and effect, the whole dynamic shifts. There is something so powerful in what you just said around holding a space for someone. You know, you're not, the space still has a container. There are still boundaries and rules and cause and effect. But inside that space, you've created a safe container where somebody can kick, scream, cry if they want to. That's an incredibly powerful thing to give to anybody, child or adult. And we had a brief conversation before this podcast started about how in learning how to respectfully and effectively parent, we're also learning how to respectively and effectively just deal with people, human beings in general. Why is that so powerful? Just giving somebody, just giving somebody the space to have their response to get through whatever they need to get through it projects a high expectation of the person in front of you, not a low expectation. So it, it, it conveys to them faith and belief in their ability. Um, you know, when I, when I first started setting boundaries with my stepdaughter, I caught her lying about her Latin homework um, that I was going through. And she basically just gave me a, a bunch of bullshit homework that was, uh, that she'd made up um, because she hadn't brought home the stuff she was supposed to do. And I caught her in it. And I go into her room and I can tell look on her face that she feels kind of humiliated by the fact she's been caught in a lie. And and I said to her, you know what, Joan, I think I got to tell you, um, I'm very impressed. I mean, you're you're creative and you you came up with all sorts of elaborate ways to avoid homework and you have a lot of people running in circles and no one can keep up with you. And I used to do a lot of the same things myself when I was your age. And, um, and so I got to start off by just saying, I admire you. You're creative. Um, there's part of me that's just impressed. Um, now having said that, I, I also, you know, you're grounded for today and you've got to figure out where to get the rest of that homework. Um, but I don't want you to take it personally. Um, cause I, uh, you know, some level of me respects and admires and understands that. And people come back and go, well, aren't you encouraging lying? And actually what I'm doing is I'm allowing the processes that are already inside her to come to the surface. And that that girl that she was, when I was walking in that room, metaphorically, she made the girl who lied inside her hide in the closet because she was ashamed of her. And she was ready for me to shame her as she marginalized that part of her. And when, what I was doing was bringing that girl out of the closet, and letting her become part of my daughter's conversation with herself. Because that's what raises somebody who knows how to resist temptations or make a real ethical decision or be compassionate when it takes courage because nobody else is doing it. Let's talk about, let's talk about consequences. You you just mentioned consequences there as in, you know, you're going to have to figure out what to do with the rest of your day. You're, you're grounded from this point on. You, you've said that, you know, consequences are, are one of those things 
that everybody thinks they know how to set them or do them until the time comes. And and then it's it's difficult because you've got to live with those consequences just as much as your child's got to live with those consequences. Before we get into what works, you said that they, they didn't work for you as a child. Consequences made very made very little difference to you. Why was that? Primarily because they were they were given with information I already knew. And I found that humiliating. So I, a, a short example is, you know, I used to, the consequence was typically, you know, 10, 10 versions of moralizing and telling me why I was wrong. And then maybe something physical would actually happen. And an example is like my father, uh, used to remind me to take out the trash. I used to, I knew I had to take out the trash every Tuesday morning, every Friday morning by 6.30. And on Monday night when he would come home, you could set your watch by it. Within five minutes, he would say to me, you didn't forget tonight's trash night, did you? And I'd go, no, I didn't forget. And then a couple minutes before dinner, he'd say, hey, we don't have dinner on for a couple of minutes. It'd just be a good chance to take out the trash. And I said, I think I'll wait. And then after dinner, he'd say, uh, the show comes on in 10 minutes. You could take out the trash now. I said, eh, I'll wait. And literally during the show, I would be, I could recognize the act break coming up in the sitcom. And I would, as it was happening, I would think, if he doesn't tell me to take out the trash, I'm going to do it now. And then he'd tell me and I'd go, no. Because internally, him telling me and then doing it was robbing me of the autonomous ability to do it on my own. And I wanted autonomy. I wanted power. And children want autonomy and power. And this is why we're breeding lions. If you make a powerful child and then you're telling them all of the solutions they could figure out themselves, you're going to have a problem. I can feel I feel two parts of me while you were telling that story. One is the, the parent in me that is feeling so frustrated at the the repetition and at the game. It doesn't need to be a game. And the other part of me I can feel is the teenager who, and I can tell you on countless occasions, has done exactly the same thing where you sit there and you think, if you if you don't say it, I will. As soon as you say it, I won't. Where's the, where's the line there between guiding as a parent and giving autonomy? And I'm, sure, I'm gonna ask this question in a hundred different ways because I, I think that it's the key. What should have happened in that moment? Let's get really practical. All right. So what should have happened is he shouldn't have said a word until Friday when I came to him for my allowance. And then he should have handed me five instead of $10. And when I asked why, he said, oh, because um, you didn't take out the trash on one day. And then the next week, he, he could have said, you know, um, I get nervous when the trash hasn't been taken out by eight. So um, I'm only paying if it's out by eight. We'll let you figure out if you want to do it. And then he paid me or didn't pay me. So doing it in a, in a way that's like, I'll let you manage this. That gives autonomy. Okay, the motivator was sit, set there in terms of, uh, you know, the allowance. So, um, and then it's funny. Sometimes I think, you know, when I'm in schools, I used, to, I used to so relate with, you know, the hyperactive kid in the classroom. And I'm teaching uh, teachers how to set the boundary. I felt like I, you know, I was a turncoat who joined the other side. Um, I felt a little guilt about it. But I think now it's just, uh, you know, having been a parent for a little while, I, <laughs> I, I relate to both sides of that. You, you talk about this other moment with your father, which 
which I loved and I think that again a lot of people would relate to and it's the moment where you were I think you were sticking your finger in electrical sockets or going to stick your finger in electrical sockets can you walk through that one well, you know this is a story I don't I don't remember, but I only remember hearing about it over and over again from my parents. Just that, uh, you know, I think it was probably just before two years old, but I was fascinated with the electrical sockets. So uh, my mom said, I, you know, I just wanted to touch them. And my father was just, you know, determined to teach me not to. So I touched the socket and he gave my handles smack. And then um, he, she said, I just looked at him. And while I looked at him, I did it again and he smacked my hand and I did it again and he smacked my hand and I did it again. And she said, there were tears streaming down my face and my hand was bright red and I just kept staring at him and touching the socket again and touching. So clearly I was somebody much more interested in, and this is the thing to understand is that if you just set up consequences for children without giving them autonomy, children will, will do what, what is completely against their self-interest. If those consequences take away things that they want, but they feel humiliating, they don't give them autonomy, they feel like they're not powerful in that situation, to feel powerful, they will negate you. Have you, have you spoken, I'm just interested, have you spoken to your father or your mother about these situations now as an adult? Have you have you sat down and talked and talked to them about how it was for them and then any insights that they had wished they had known at the time or have any of those conversations taken place? I had some of those conversations with my mom. My mom and dad have passed away. They, they, uh, my mom passed away about nine years ago. My dad passed away about five. And um, so and we had some conversations. I was just writing the book, you know, when my mom passed away. And uh, so I was reading her segments of it. And, uh, you know, what I realized, to be honest, is I think my parents really, both of them, did the best they possibly could. You know, they had they both had some horrible experiences. My father was raised without a father, um, was sort of made the man of the house when he was 10 years old. Um, And. You know, he just didn't have a model for how to do things. And, um, you know, I think he probably also would be diagnosed Asperger's today. He, socially, he was not particularly – he was like a, a savant in terms of computing, was a, a pioneer in supercomputing. But in terms of uh, human relations, um, not so much. Uh, you know, I think he did his best and we had some conversations about it. But they were conversations he wasn't particularly interested in having. I think that, that it's one of those topics where there's no short or easy answer. You know, you, you go into those conversations if you have them at all and they rarely turn out how you expect. And I was just fascinated to know if any had been attempted or, or how they had went gone. It's, you know, I also, I think one thing that played in for me is I was adopted. And, and I only say this because I think, um, you know, I, I love my parents, but we were very different. I read a statistic once that adopted children were six times more likely to be diagnosed ADHD. And I thought about that. What is it? And I think partly it's because um, the parents are less likely to recognize those attributes as normal because they didn't experience them themselves. So I think, you know, I looked 
far out of the norm for my parents and certainly based on what they were doing, you know, uh, when they were kids. And so it was harder to understand. Um, you know, the upside was I, I learned how I learned about very different kinds of people and were raised with, you know, how to figure out that dynamic. What are, what are some tips? There's a, there's a term you use, which I loved, which was meeting your child's hands. And you said that it's, you know, it's based around this question, I have power, do you have power? Can you, can you walk me through what that is and why it's important? So, yeah, this is crucial because I think um, it's really about understanding the function of behavior um, and defiant behavior. Uh, because, you know, we tend to take it personally. It's very naturally natural. You ask your child to do something and they do the opposite while they look you in the face. It, it feels pretty personal. Um, but the truth is they're scientists and they're conducting experiments and it's not just about what works and what doesn't work, but it's, it's really, they're going through sort of an existential shift about feeling completely connected in the womb and coming out and, and not really understanding fully that we're separate to waking up to that. There's a separate, there's two people here. And then, and that creates anxiety and fear and they need to resolve that. Who has power? Do I have power? So when a child's doing a little defiant behavior or going against your will, um, they're asking that question. They're asking, they're saying first, I have power. I'm here. Do you have power? Are you here? And the problem with what a lot of parents are being taught right now is that a verbal answer and explanation is not giving them any substantial thing that you're there. It's giving them reasoning as if that's a, a reasoning question. It's not a, re, you're, it's not a question about, you know, hitting the dog. It's not a question about throwing the ball. It's an existential question. Are you here? Are you like me? Do you have a force of will like I do? Okay. And so when we give just an explanation, the hand goes away from that hand. That hand is reaching up and saying, I'm here. Are you here? Are you like me? And that hand's not meeting it. And the child experiences that kind of a, a response as abandonment. That hand's left flailing. Now that's part in response to to the authoritarian method that was done, you know, depending on where you live, 20 to 50 years ago, with a yelling and a spanking. Uh, so a yelling and a spanking, the answer was, you're not here, I'm here. You don't have power, I have power. And so the child's agency was damaged in that interaction. Um, whereas the, you know, the information response, the answer really is, um, you're here, you have power, but I'm not here. I don't have power, which is why they experience it as abandonment, which causes more acting out because they need to resolve that question. Um, what I, what I'm pushing for is that parents can answer that question with the response. Yes, you're here. Yes, you have power, but I'm also here and I also have power. And that means meeting the hand. The two hands are, are, are touching. They're pressing together. Neither one is negated. Both are recognized. I think that basic feeling of mutual recognition is the cornerstone of mental health. Can you walk me through the break protocol? What is the break protocol? Yeah, so the, the break protocol is is the most simple way to sort of create order in your house. Earlier you were talking about um, – you know, in the middle of conflict, parents are trying to make up something to do. And inevitably, you're going to make something up. It's not going to be great. 
Um, you're trying to make up the creative consequence and come up with the right natural thing in that moment, set the boundary the right way. It's, it's almost an impossible task. So the break protocol is a solution to that because it, it's, a, it's a way that facilitates a simple set of actions that can change the dynamic with your child by giving data that's clear and pairing that with language that's filled with autonomy. So what is it? How does it sound? It's basically asking your child to stop and take and sit down quietly for a minute and call that a break. Um, for a five-year-old, that might be a one-minute break. Um, and it, the way it sounds is, uh, you know, Gloria, I need you to take a one-minute break. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop. It's okay. But um, if you don't take the one-minute break in five seconds, then it becomes a three-minute break. But I'll let you decide. Five, four, three. One, if her butt's in the chair in the five seconds, she does a one-minute break. You say, okay, you're ready to start? Great. If not, it's basically like she missed the exit on the freeway and she's going to the next exit. It's going to take a little longer to get where she's going. Oh, I guess you need a three-minute break. You follow that pattern. And then on the on the third step, it's like, oh, I, you, know, you need to hold her. And you sit with her. And, say, and then she cries. And you say, oh, it's okay. If you need to cry, I'll, I'll wait until you're finished crying. So there's three steps like a roadmap. First exit, second exit, end of the road. That's what happens. And what happens is your child quickly recognizes that map because they're a researcher. They adapt to that map. And all of a sudden you have a tool that instead of telling them information that they can figure out themselves, that you want them to practice figuring out themselves, okay, you can say, take a break for a minute. Don't tell them why. They say, why? Tell me why first. You say, if you need, I'll tell you after they never want to know after because they figured it out right and then they go and sit down they calm themselves just the moving sitting calming is a prefrontal cortex exercise it builds attention span and impulse control but they've also now self-cueing about the behavior and they're building mutual recognition and that's a universal tool um, for older kids you, of course you're not going to hold them um, but there's all sorts of um, adaptations that make uh, effective sort of end of the road steps for that all i can think about while you were while you were saying that is the type of adult that that would create you know an, an adult that is capable of removing themselves from a situation and giving themselves a mental break that is self-aware enough to know when they're not coping either mentally or emotionally or overwhelmed and is able to remove themselves again and come back in a more resourceful state and that's essentially what what it seems like you're building there a resourceful resilient human being yeah see you brought up a that's a uh i love that point and i think it's super important um you know the longer i do this and teach it to other people the more that i realize i'm just teaching parents how to instill in children uh skills that people typically go to therapy for when they're 30 maybe 50 you know it's there's all sorts of basic skills of being able to stop yourself. I mean, I give myself breaks throughout the day. You know, one example, when I need to sit down and write, I have an app that I turned on that shuts down my internet. <laughs> even if I want to get on, even if it wants access to me, it can't have access to me and I can't have access to it. My hands are tied. Okay. It's a break of sorts. Why? Because it's the only way I get, you know, quality writing done. There's a point that you made, and I don't know 
you may or may not remember making it. I think it was somewhere that I found it. Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker rules. I roughly understand it. Can you can you walk through it? Because I think that there's something really important there around motivator motivators. Yeah, this is crucial. And this actually describes a lot of the children that I, I end up working with. So um, so imagine a, um, a four-year-old comes into a, a preschool and, um, and they're impulsive and they're funny and it's their first time with a lot of other kids and they try to make friends and they're trying to fit in. Um, but they're a little impulsive and the teacher's giving them direction and they're not really good at following them. And uh, they can't figure out what's what in terms of the social structure, but they want to be seen and they want to have some power, but they, they, they're, you know, they want to make a friend and they push them instead and that doesn't work. And the teacher's telling them they're doing the wrong thing. Well, at some point it's like they walked into the casting call for star Wars and they looked around the room and they thought, well, they've got a Luke Skywalker. He wants to be the hero and make everybody happy. They got princess Leia there's a Han Solo. Hey, nobody's doing Darth Vader. That's a great role. Well, how does Darth Vader get his power? Well, first he pisses everybody off. And he doesn't care what anybody thinks. Everybody else wants approval. I want disapproval. It's a fun position. And it's an exciting place in that power structure. And then the problem comes up because teachers treat that kid as if he's Luke Skywalker. And they say, hey, look, you don't you see you hurt such and such feelings when you did that? And he says, that's okay. I like that. And they go, oh, my God, he's a psychopath. So the rules are the opposite in terms of managing Darth Vader than Luke Skywalker. If you're trying to get him to do what you want by telling him how it makes you feel bad or it's not good or bad or other people don't approve of it, well, that's what he's trying to do. So you have to take a different approach when you want to turn around that kid because you're good. otherwise you're going to just keep giving, you know, you're, it's the preacher um, talking to the scientist. It's not going to work. Two different languages. So what's what's the approach? What's the Darth Vader, the Darth Vader approach? Yeah. So the Darth Vader approach is the break protocol. I mean, you set boundaries, but while you're setting the boundaries, you give autonomy. It's super important. You stop telling him what you want him to do. Actually identify that it's okay if he does the opposite. And that if he wants to do that, that's all right. So, you know, um, you know, he throws a toy across the room at somebody else. And, you know, you say, Brian, I need you to take a break for a minute. No, you can't make me. Oh, well, you're right. I'm, I'm not going to make you take the break, but if you don't take it, you know, it becomes a longer break. And, and then, uh, you know, you have to walk him out and sit next, sit him out, outside. And he says, "I don't like you," and I, you know, and I'm not going to do what you say. And he says, oh, "Okay, well, if you if you need to sit and talk for a while, or that's fine, I'll let you do that." Take all that charge out of it. It's the charge that makes Darth Vader powerful. It's the moralizing that makes him powerful. Okay, so stop giving him information about things he can figure out himself, because he's gonna that's going to feed the power dynamic. You know, I, I had a teacher the other day and she said, I, I, I tell this boy all the time, I, I want you to make the good decision. I want you to make good decisions. And when he makes them, I said, you've made a bad decision. So blank, blank, blank. And I'm like, you're just giving him ammunition because he gets power from opposing you. He wants to offend you. So don't be offended. Just set up cause and effect and speak to him like a coach and he'll come around and adjust. 
and it's amazing. Within, you know, typically somewhere between two and six weeks, you'll see that child switch around entirely and no longer want to be the one that's pissing everybody off anymore. And all of a sudden he's happy that he, he's doing well in school. But you, t you stepped out of his autonomous space and you let him step into it. And that power dynamic just fell to pieces and drops out. You, it's been said it's been said about you that you have an incredible knack for walking kids back and I just I loved that language not dragging kids back not you know putting kids to the side but walking kids back it's it's such a collaborative way of looking at it are there any first steps that you always go back to in that process do you have this a, a model in your mind where when you meet a child for the first time, a child that's previously, you know, as you've said, comes with a dossier, what are the first steps you usually go to? I think it's very important, and this is going to sound odd, but I think it's very important that I, I not be attached to them liking me. Um, matter of fact, I had a, had a family last weekend and midway through me talking to the parents, I was at their home, their daughter started you know, a whole litany of verbal abuse about I should leave the house. At one point, she called the police to try and have me removed. She didn't like what I was saying to her parents. And at the end of the the whole visit, um, they said, no, you should apologize to Mr. Newman. And I said, no, it's okay. I, I actually, I don't need an apology. She's not supposed to like me. I'm changing the order of things, and I'm giving you tools to do that. And so I'm okay with it. She's not supposed to like me. She's supposed to be upset. You know, we're shifting the power dynamic. I mean, she might change her mind about me in a, in a couple of weeks or a month, or she might not, but I respect that. And I'm okay with it. It's almost this juvenile uh, obsession with that we're good people if children like us. Yeah, I, I, I think it's way too much burden to put on children. Um, they're, we're supposed to do things that are going to annoy and frustrate them. And the more we can do those without judging them and judging the fact that they're annoyed by us, um, the better our relationship's going to be down the road. And the more they're going to feel like they've got an equal that they can really see eye to eye with in us. Let's just talk very briefly about, about education. Uh, I'm not at that stage with my children yet. I'm not at the school stage you said, and you said at the beginning of this of this conversation, that you had a really understanding mum who helped you pass school by transcribing your papers as you paced the living room and talked. What can what can parents and carers be doing to support the the lions that they're that they're here to raise in school environments? Because obviously, you can create one kind of environment at home, but there's always going to be a time where you have to introduce and send your child to another environment where the rules might be different. You know, there's the ideal world and then there's the world that we send our children to, you know, which are two different things. You know, um, schools do their best to try and, you know, create an environment for all kids. But, it, you know, it just typically doesn't happen. It's just, um, you know, hopefully it happen in the future. So I think the thing to keep in mind is that we want to talk to our children about what are their powers. And, like a child who can't sit still, who's actually would learn much better in a field or in a wood shop or apprenticing with a plumber, um, which are all powerful ways to learn, um, but has to go and sit down in school. You know, I, first of all, I would take the judgment out of it when they can and can't do that to the extent that they can. Um, and then 
at the same time, I think we need to talk to them frankly about like, you know, this is the teacher you've got and you've got to learn how to do your best. And what's your power in this situation? And how can you be more prepared for it in school? Yeah. Okay. Maybe that wasn't the best way that things went down, but how can you prepare yourself? So you're better suited for school tomorrow because this is where you are. And we've got to, so I think finding, helping children be prepared for what they've got there and what they've got in front of them, as opposed to creating accommodations or demanding too many accommodations that may not even be helpful. I think it's important that children learn how to, to deal with difficult situations. And sometimes for some kids, school is going to be a difficult situation. For another kid, it's not going to be. They're more naturally suited for it. But I think it helps the child in the long run to, to teach them that, look, we don't have to take it so seriously in terms of um, that this defines you, your success in school, but we need to, to do our best and then set the boundaries and prepare them as best we can to succeed. What would you say? I mean, I'm, I've got a friend very firmly in mind at the moment who has found herself in a, in a school office tens of times. And she said, you know, she's, her, her child tends to respond violently in social situations if he doesn't understand if he's if he doesn't get what he wants a variety of different situations and she says she sits there and she doesn't really know what to say she does I mean she's one of the most patient wonderful human beings and she said I just I don't know what to say we've been here so many times before she said I don't know what to say to the teacher because we've tried everything we know how um I also don't know what to say to my child on the long drive home where he sat in the back of the car waiting for me to say something. Do you, is there any guidance, any language, any questions that can help themselves, help someone if they find themselves in that situation? I think it's important that we realize that kids behave according to the rules that are happening around them. And if that child is violent at school but not violent at home, um, there's a reason for that. And, and, and second, I would say that uh, a break protocol would help them at school. I mean, we just, I, I have lots of schools that are doing it right now and using some version of that break protocol. And the reason that break protocol would help is that it gives small bits of regulation without judgment in response to this. So that even when they're upset in a small moment, they learn to stop themselves, move and sit. Uh, particularly when that's done in a way that doesn't, that gives them autonomy and takes away judgment. I think on the ride home, I would not moralize about how horrible that is because I don't think those behaviors are happening because he has some sort of moral flaw. It, it happens because he's impulsive and he has a hard time controlling that. So first of all, I, I would say, do you want to talk? Because I'm happy to talk with you. I very, very rarely want to force a conversation. And even then, I don't want to lecture them. So that, that conversation would be characterized by questioning, asking him questions. What happened? Well, you know, are you happy with how it turned out? And if you could do it again, what would you do? I'm not saying you did anything wrong. Maybe there was a good reason there. And take the judgment out of each place where they're going to be defensive. Step in and go, look there might've been a, a perfectly healthy reason for that. Or maybe it was something you felt like you couldn't control in the moment. I'm just asking. 
I just want to understand so that you understand better because we talk about it. Help him sort through his own things, uh, but not in terms of good and bad. And even if he puts and sometimes those kids will will be, you know, more judgmental of themselves afterwards than you are. But I think it doesn't help to be judgmental of that. I, don't, I think it's rather, well, what could you do differently? You know, ultimately, I think that we can help children control those kind of behaviors and emotions starting at home, and then we can move those processes into schools. You had said that to this day, your seven-year-old self sits very closely on the surface of your consciousness, which I just thought was a really fascinating thing to acknowledge because I, I think that's true. It's true for us all as aware or unaware as we might be of it at the, at the time. What do those interactions look like now, knowing everything that you know? Those interactions between you, your grown-up self who's trying to parent himself in those moments, and the seven-year-old you? You know, my seven-year-old self is still the one who does all the best writing. Uh, my adult self uh, serves him. And, and so in that process of when I have to discipline myself, there's an internal, you know, I, and I think this is true for a lot of people. We internalize the voices of our parents. So for me, I realized when probably I was in my mid-30s when I realized that the reason I was late everywhere I went was I, I was still having a fight with my father even though he was on the other side of the country because he always had to be obsessively early and he was always humiliating with me when I was not on time. And my result, my response was to push back and go, screw you, I'll be late. How do you like that? That was my taking back of dignity. And I sort of generalized that into the, into my, the, in how I interacted with the world, even if that was um, against my self-interest. Um, so now, as I discipline myself, I have to be really careful that I don't do it with the voice of humiliation, that I don't do it, you know, that I was like, all right, I set that I have to set boundaries for myself in the course of a day, course of writing a book or getting, you know, a new web designer or whatever my, my goal, I have to set those in the same way that I would set them for a child. So that means set a firm boundary hold the edges, take away the moralizing judgment, stay in a compassionate place while you're strict with the motivators. This is my, my final question. I think just, by the way, that last point that you made, there's an entire podcast in that. <laughs> how, you, how you parent yourself, how you, how you influence yourself when those voices come in. The, the premise of, of the lion, raising lions method and from everything that I have come to understand about it, is that it's asking us to evolve our core beliefs around conflict, communication, learning, respect, and, and obviously, essentially, love. If, there's, if I could give you a stage and a microphone, and in front of you I could put every single person you would want to influence on those topics, be they parents, be they carers, be they grown-ups, be they children... What's the one thing? You could have them just understand one thing. What would it be? There are no broken children. When you, when you call them disordered and you think uh, that, oh, it's just disordered, so you just have – that you're not fooling anybody. You're not, the child's going to take it in as broken. 
we need to assume the best ability in them. And we think that's easy. It's not easy. It's a, it's a, it's a tough thing, and we need to keep reflecting. When we're not getting a great result, and we have, when we're medicating a, a, a large percentage of our children, um, we're not getting it right. And we need to be skeptical of, of our current frame of mind and go, we need to do things differently until we get a better result. And we need to look critically at, at, at the assumptions we're holding right now um, if we're getting that kind of a poor result. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe, for taking the time to, to have this conversation. I've, I feel like I'm going to be listening back to this conversation at least 20 times over the next 10 years. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.